Hi there, I'm Gavin Crawford. I'm a writer, an actor, and a comedian. And for the last eight or nine years, I have been navigating life with my mother's increasing dementia. Has it been sad? Yeah. Has it been funny? Also, yeah. That's what my brand new podcast series, Let's Not Be Kidding, is about. It's the true story of my life as a comedian, my mom, and dementia. Let's Not Be Kidding, with me, Gavin Crawford. A new seven-part series from CBC Podcasts, available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. This is a story about gold and greed and lies. Three things that are often found together. The gold, allegedly, was in a mine called Cordova, a little bit northeast of Peterborough, Ontario. The greed was understandable. Everyone dreams of a tiny investment, bringing them a windfall in return, especially people with little in the way of retirement savings and a small nest egg that needs to get much, much bigger. The lies? The lies were everywhere, although there's some dispute about which were technically lies and which were questions that never got asked or advice that nobody got. But in the end, it didn't matter, because the money was gone, and the gold never existed. The only question left was if anyone who had offered up their life savings would ever get it back. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Grant LaFleche is a member of the Torstar Investigations team. Hello, Grant. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing well. Why don't you start by just answering a simple question? Who are the Maury's? So the the Maury's are, um, I want to say, well-known family in the Niagara region. They're mostly well-known for the garden center that they ran in Niagara-on-the-Lake on Highway 55. It was sort of an upscale garden center. Um, a lot of people, you didn't just get flowers there. You would get, you know, the trees and the the verge or whatever you wanted to plant in your backyard or your front yard or something. So that's how most people know the name. Uh, the family patriarch, a gentleman by the name of Lino More, is known in certain business circles. He's a very wealthy person. He sort of rubs shoulders with uh, the wealthy winery owners and wine producers of Niagara region. Uh, even if he's not, even if people in the public don't know Lino by name or any of his children, they certainly know the Garden Center. Uh, it has been a fixture for for over 50 years in Niagara. So that's the family. Now, who is Alex Kristoff? And we'll use him as an example. I know that this story contains uh, more than 100 Alex Kristoffs, really. But but how did he come to be involved with the Maury's, and who is he? So Alex Kristoff uh, was, uh, the late Alex Kristoff, was a Niagara resident. Right. Um, as a young man, he was involved in a hunting accident uh, up north in, in northern Ontario. He had it really hurt his back, evidently, according to his nephew, trying to drag a moose back to camp after he had shot it, which if you know the size of a moose and the attempt to move such an animal, you can imagine the back injury. Yeah. Um, and it really was it, it was bad. He, he never really found any pain relief for it his whole life. And if you leap ahead to his 70s, this is uh, this is 2001. Um, he meets, uh, through a mutual friend, a woman named Bonnie Mori. Now, she is the wife of one of Lino Mori's kids, a gentleman by the name of Richard. 
And Bonnie presents herself as an alternative uh, medicine practitioner. And Alex, he goes to meet Bonnie at her clinic in her home in Niagara-on-the-Lake, effectively looking for pain relief. He's looking for someone who can uh, get this phantom knife out of his spine so he can live his twilight years uh, pain-free if, if possible. And that's where his relationship with the Mores begins. So first of all, did he find any pain relief? And how did the relationship develop after that? Uh, he did He did not, ultimately. He uh, visited her quite often. Uh, he spent hundreds and hundreds of dollars on treatments and herbs and supplements and, you know, kind of the new age alternative healing stuff for which there uh, may be dubious efficacy. Mm-hmm. But he did become quite close with Bonnie. They became um, friends. She would bring food to his home, you know, groceries or dinner to his home. She even invited him at one point to join the family vacation in Florida. So while the healing aspect of her visits to her ultimately went nowhere and didn't provide him with any pain relief, uh, Mr. Kristoff certainly found uh, a new friend in, in both her and the Maury family. And how did the Maury family approach that new friendship? And I'm speaking specifically here about the opportunity that Alex was presented with, because that's really where this whole thing uh, picks up speed. Absolutely. So at one point, uh, while he's visiting her at her clinic for more of these treatments that, as we know, didn't provide any pain relief, she says to him, in effect, uh, you know, Alex, I've got a great opportunity for you because she knew by this point that Alex had some money put aside that he may want to invest. And she brings him down the hall to meet her husband, Richard, who then presents the golden opportunity, which is for him to invest in Richard's gold mine company called Gold Insight Resources. And if he he promises a huge return on an investment, he says, look, you have to invest now because we're about to hit the stock exchange. And once we do, the value of these uh, stocks in these shares in this gold mine company is going to go through the roof. Um, he says they have a gold mine in a place called Cordova, uh, which is farther north uh, in Ontario. And so now they say to Mr. Kristoff, now is the time to invest. And he trusts them. He mm-hmm. has been a friend and patient of Bonnie for some time. He knows the Maury name, uh, just like many people in Niagara do. And he knows Lino's reputation as a wealthy businessman. So he decides to invest some $22,000 with the Maury's, with Richard in this gold mine venture, and even convinces his Uh, nephew Rick to pitch in $4,000 of his own money. At the time this opportunity was presented, did he also see any evidence, any gold taken from the mine, any evidence this was a working mine or that there were working mines owned by this company? No. And to be fair to Mr. Kristoff and and other investors in the Gold Insight, I don't think he ever looked. Mm -hmm. He was operating solely on two things. He was operating his trust in Bonnie, his friend, and he was operating on uh, believing the story that Richard Morey is telling, uh, that he has this gold mine, that this, you know, that this will earn, uh, him and his investors just a, a ungodly amount of money. So he, he didn't do any of his own research. And it's, I guess, key to understand here, Jordan, that although Alex Kristoff had in the past, his nephew says, you know, had some small investments in different aspects of the stock market, he had no experience in mining. Uh, he had no experience mm-hmm. in securities, really. So he he really is placing his trust in people when he's giving them their money, as opposed to 
you know, a journalist or someone with experience doing a bunch of due diligence to figure out, you know, exactly what this company may or may not be. Okay. So you're a journalist. You've done due diligence. This is a lengthy uh, and in-depth investigation. Maybe just explain to us, of all the things you just described that Alex and, and folks like him were told and promised, what do we know now about how much of that was true and how much wasn't? Yeah. I mean, broad strokes, you can say virtually none of it was true. Um, there, as we said in our, our investigation uh, in, in the Toronto Star, every claim that Richard made about his gold mine, it touched on reality. It abutted reality a little bit. So, for instance, the gold mine in Cordova. There is a town um, north of Peterborough called Cordova. It's a wee little place. Uh, and there is a gold mine there. What Mr. Christoph and the other investors that Richard Morey found, what they did not know was that that gold mine hadn't produced a single ounce of gold since before the end of World War II. Okay. That the land is contaminated. The, the gold mine was shut down in 1940. The tunnels are flooded. The mine office, I went and visited the place. The mine office is filled with bats. So if somebody does go up there, please don't stick your head in a window. <laughs> uh, and it's being crushed by vines and, and vegetation in, in the forests up there. Um, the, the mine, the mine entrance is completely blocked off with giant piles of this blackened stone, which were probably leftover excavation from the original digging of the mine tunnels, uh, back in the 19th century. None of Richard Morey's investors knew this and they were just going on trust. I mean, I'm not even sure that Richard Morey himself actually even visited the site, although he certainly knew that there was no gold being produced there. He was able to convince people like Mr. Kristoff to invest with him because he could tell the story really well, and they believed him because of it. We've alluded a few times here already to Alex and others like him. What is the scale of this investment? How many others are we talking about, and, and what kind of money? Uh, in total, we were able to confirm that there were 188 investors who gave money to Richard Morey, either directly for his gold mine company or, and, and we can talk about this in a bit, uh, this kaleidoscope of shell companies that he also created at the, around the same time to keep bringing in investor money. Those 188 people invested over $2 million with Mr. Mori. None of them saw so much as a dime uh, in terms of return on their investment. And, and again, I just need to stress that none of these people, for the most part, were experienced investors. They didn't know about the stock market. Right. They, they didn't even know, you know, to pay a hundred bucks to go get a financial ad advisor for a couple of hours and say, what does this look like to you? Mm -hmm. So, you know, at the end, a lot of them were seniors. I mean, the one thing we haven't mentioned about Mr. Kristoff is that he, he died in his nineties, still mm -hmm. trying to get his money back from Richard Morey. And there were a couple of other cases of investors who sought to get money from him that they were owed. And they ended up dying in their mid to late nineties, still looking for justice. You mentioned a minute ago uh, that we could talk about shell companies. Um, what are they? Why were there shell companies and what purpose did they serve uh, for Mr. Morey? So a shell company, for your listeners who are unfamiliar, uh, the, the, the basic way to describe it is it is literally an empty shell. It is a company that'll have a name. It'll have a president. Uh, it could be a, a numbered company. But the key thing is it has no assets whatsoever. Mm -hmm. It makes no money. It is simply exists as a vehicle through which to move funds. But it, it, it in itself does and produces nothing. For Mr. Mori, he very quickly, this scam begins uh, in 2001. 
But he very quickly runs into a problem, and that problem is the Ontario Securities Act. It's the legislation that governs how companies can sell shares and sell securities in Ontario. If you have a privately traded company under the law in Ontario, you can have no more than 50 shareholders. Now, that 50 shareholders may be giant investors, and you, you will see private companies with this few investors who can you know, give you tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars. In Mr. Mori's case, he's getting $500, $5,000, $10,000. Right. But he runs, he hits that 50 person limit quite quickly. Uh, he needs to keep, this is how he's generating money. Well, he can't just sell more shares in Gold Insight anymore because he's hit 50. So the first thing he does after that is he creates three shell companies. Again, companies that don't own anything. The, the Gold Insight company, the real one, may not be making any money and it may not be mining gold, but it does own land at the very least. It owns the Cordova uh, property. Right. These shell companies are named, they have similar names. They're Gold Insight 2003, Gold Insight 2004, and Gold Insight 2005. And he proceeds to find investors to give him money for shares in these companies, but he's pitching it as though it's the original company that, again, while maybe worthless, does own land. The investors don't know the difference. They, in fact, hmm. at that point, have no way to know the difference. So the shell companies were ultimately a vehicle for him to continue running this scheme, which he thought with ever, he would not run afoul of the Ontario Securities Act and its governing body, the Ontario Securities Commission. And that allowed him to keep this scam running uh, for more than a decade. How did the scam run for so long? I mean, just based on what you told me about uh, what Mr. Kristoff was told, you know, this is a company pitched as like, it's about to go public. It's about to be really hot. There's about to be an IPO, et cetera. So at what point over the decade do the chickens come home to roost and people realize this company's doing nothing? It, it, to answer the first part of your questions, how did he keep it running for so long? There were a couple of ways in which he operated that essentially prevented the left hand from knowing what the right hand was doing. So if you were an investor in the original Gold Insight, you wouldn't necessarily know about the existence of the shell companies. You had no idea this was happening. Um, there were other shell companies he created. There was a diamond mine version of it that he created. And he had these other dubious ventures, including at one point tr saying he owned a perfume company that was going to sell something called Nagra Mist that somehow smelled like the mist off Niagara Falls, which I... Don't know if anybody wants to smell like the mist off Niagara Falls, but that's what he tried to say. <laughs> sure. Going so far as to claiming that former Niagara-based supermodel um, Linda Evangelista was going to market it, all of which was false. The other way he kept it running was internally in Gold Insight. So the accountant who was supposed to manage the books, he actually there – were, there were transactions happening and money moving around that he would not be told about until well after the fact. So there was nobody internally even – who knew what was going on. And for a long time, the board of directors of Gold Insight were essentially just his family and friends and his lawyer, um, all of whom, you know, for a long time, were not going to drop a dime on him. So he, he always had a way to kind of throw up smoke around parts of the scheme so that nobody got a clear picture of it. And it didn't start to fall apart for him until you get into uh, about 2017 and there's a couple of new investors who end up taking a hard look at what where their money is going. And once um, they began to pull on the thread, 
the entire tapestry begins to become unwoven. But it took more than a decade for, for enough people, only a couple really, to start taking a hard look at what was going on and saying, wait, this doesn't make any sense. And it, the inciting event of the downfall of the entire scheme was a lawsuit filed by a family that had invested in total more than $350,000 with Richard Moray. And that lawsuit made the board of directors nervous. Uh, it prompted um, other people in the company to start saying, yeah, wait a minute, like, where is this money going? Um, these promises that Richard are making aren't making sense. And so that's really the beginning of the end. It, e even at that point, it would take a little bit of time before the whole thing collapsed. What have you been able to find out about, because this part fascinates me, about who else in the company knew what was going on or suspected something funny was going on and kind of let it slide. You just mentioned there were members of his family, but also that the board of directors would be nervous over a lawsuit. So I guess I'm trying to get a sense of how much of this is like, uh, not a pyramid scheme, I guess, but how much of this is kind of an organized scheme and how much of it is just Mr. Mori uh, duping people on both sides? Well, certainly, um, Although she denies it, uh, when we talked to her, Bonnie Mori was a central piece of the way in which this scheme operated. Uh, a number of investors were coming to Richard through her and her clinic. Um, she presented herself as a doctor, for instance. Well, she has no higher education whatsoever, never mind being a PhD or an MD of anything. But she earned people's trust, introduced them to Richard, and they went on. We did interview Lino, Richard's father. Um, and he essentially just says, well, yes, this entire thing was a money losing venture, but I kept giving Richard money and covering his costs for lawsuits when they came up and, uh, propping him up and giving him huge mortgages and things, uh, because Richard asked for it. So Lino was certainly aware, um, that parts of this, uh, were happening. And, uh, his lawyer, the late, uh, Joe Seguin, who was a board member for a long time, he was aware, however, before he died in 2020, he penned an affidavit, almost a deathbed statement that got notarized saying, in effect, I told Richard not to do this and he ignored me and went ahead and did it anyway. Hmm. I told him it was against the law and he ignored me. And there's this interesting moment when I'm interviewing Richard Morey and he's saying this before I told him I have the affidavit. And he blames the shell company scheme on Joe. He said, well, Joe, my lawyer told me to do this. So if there was something wrong with it, it's the lawyer's fault until I read him the affidavit. And Mr. Morey really doesn't have an answer for that. The, the board members who ultimately rebelled, uh, which included his lawyer, Joe Seguin, um, that didn't happen until the, this large lawsuit dropped. And they felt, you know what? Richard has now become a liability. If we're ever going to make this company work, he can't be around anymore. And they essentially forced him out. But, and this will sort of give you an indication of how much the family is overall involved in what this scheme was. They owned most of the shares in both the real gold insight company and in the shell companies. And so Lino used his majority shareholder position to force an emergency meeting to have Richard restored to his position as company president. And it takes like almost another full year before uh, new board members are able to really dig deep enough to expose the scheme and push Richard out for good. What happens when this all gets exposed? You know, we've mentioned a lawsuit. Um, I am not, I am the furthest thing from a legal expert. It feels like there might be some illegal activity going on here. Is there any criminal investigation happening? So here is the part of the story that frustrates 
the board members who were the the whistleblowers in this entire thing. And they're the ones who initially had uncovered the existence of the shell companies and how much money was being moved through them, et cetera. Um, they went to the Ontario Securities Commission, which again is the regulator that's supposed to protect Ontario citizens from schemes like this. And they brought the documentation they had at the time and said, look at this, you know, more than 180 people have been taken. We think it's, you know, the, the dollar value is into the millions. You should investigate. The answer from the Ontario Securities Commission was we're not going to investigate because under the act, there is a statute of limitations of six years from the from when the uh, alleged offense began, which in this case would have been 2001. And they didn't get the information they had until 2017, 2018. Uh, long after that six-year limit. So they, they, the Securities Commission has declined to investigate. And although uh, board members have brought these issues to both the Ontario Provincial Police and the Niagara Regional Police, uh, they also have not pursued an investigation, which really does leave most of the uh, former shareholders in Gold Insight sort of holding an empty bag. There are a couple of families who sued and got payouts but for most of them, most of that 188 people, their money's gone forever. And, and this includes, by the way, Jordan, and it's one of the sadder stories, uh, a family in Windsor who uh, there was a gentleman who was a, a GM worker who remortgaged his home in order to get $50,000 to invest in Gold Insight. And uh, when the whole thing fell apart, the GM worker had died. His widow, who was stuck raising their children because she lost her husband, had asked for her money back and she was ignored. Uh, by Mr. Mori. So this entire uh, thing leaves in its wake victims who have lost, in some cases, all of their savings. And there doesn't seem to be a mechanism through which they're going to be able to recoup any of it. That was going to be one of my last questions is, is there any fight still going on? Have most of these people abandoned the idea of ever getting their money back? And, you know, are they going to get away with it? Not to put words in your mouth. So there's, there's, to my knowledge, um, there's only one current lawsuit still active and the investors who launched it, uh, have told me that they may just have to give up because Lino, Richard's father is bankrolling his son. They're able to extend this out in court, uh, for quite some time, you know, making motions and other things. They basically can outspend other people. And so the, this family who's launched this lawsuit, they can't afford to proceed any further with the court action. Uh, and they're considering dropping it. To your point, most of the others uh, have just given up trying to find a way to get money back. They either can't afford a lawyer or they don't know what avenue to pursue. And without the Ontario Securities Commission uh, investigating this to to use the act to bring some degree of justice to this case, th- there may be no way for them to do it there. And even Lino Mori, Richard's father, said to us in an interview that his son is broke his son has never made a dollar in his life. And he said uh, to us, and I quote, he can't even afford a goddamn cup of coffee. So how is he going to pay people back? So, I mean, Richard Mori, we found, doesn't even own his own home. He's leasing it in, in Niagara Falls. He's never owned, you know, anything of, of real value. We're not even sure where most of that money disappeared to of that $2 million collected over that span of time. There, it, most of it is unaccounted for. We don't know where it went. So it, to answer your question in, in a short word, the answer is no. There doesn't seem to be an avenue for people to get their money back, and most have given up trying. Last question, and it's about the big picture. You know, Richard Mori is one thing, and, you know, we know there is stuff like this uh, that happens, sadly, often to seniors. 
What did you realize while reporting this story about the bigger picture of shell companies and regulations and securities in Ontario that allowed this to happen? Is there something fundamentally different that could have been in place that would have created a mechanism that could have stopped this or protected these people? It's hard to know if if you could create a mechanism that could have started the scheme in its infancy. However, um, certainly if there are more stringent reporting requirements that companies, even privately held companies, have to produce to the Ontario Securities Commission, that would have been a red flag immediately because once you take a hard look at the books as we did, um, it immediately start, stops making sense. And you can see how the Mori family in many instances are when, it, when, when there was money in the in the kitty, they would just take it most of it for themselves. Uh, so they were profiting. Uh, the investors were left with nothing. I, I think the other thing is, and I don't know if this is a, a regulatory issue, but it is kind of a buyer beware morality tale, which is don't give your money to anybody until you've checked them out. If it sounds too good to be true, don't do it. And I know that sounds very cliched, but when you look at the number of times in the, you know this entire scheme, the number of times people were taken by promises that you and I, or you know maybe a sophisticated investment person or an investigative journalist or something, would immediately look at and go, "No way, that's crazy." Most people, that's not where their headspace is at because that's not how they think. That's not their day to day. And they're living hand to mouth and they're being promised with, you know, turning over what little money they have will secure their future and their kids' future forever. I don't know what the answer is there, Jordan, but there certainly needs to be a way to better inform the public and better protect them from being taken by schemes like this. And finally, that six-year statute of limitations in the Ontario Securities Act probably needs to go. Because that limit that limits you your ability to investigate historic crimes. I mean, if you look at something more ghastly like the sexual crimes of of Catholic priests that date back decades, well, we can still the, the criminal justice system can still pursue them decades after the fact. But in Ontario, a, a white collar securities a potential securities crime, there's not even an investigation to determine if a charge can be laid because of the statute of limitations, and that is a real roadblock for the victims of a scheme like this one. Grant, thank you so much for taking the time today. And thanks for your work on a story like this. I I think sometimes these kind of things don't seem as important as a global pandemic. But when you think about the the 72-year-old folks who are losing their life savings, um, they absolutely are. Absolutely. Thank you for your time, Jordan. I appreciate your interest. Investigative reporter Grant LaFlesche. That was The Big Story. For more from us, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca, find us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn, and talk to us anytime via email, thebigstorypodcast at rci.rogers.com. You can listen to us in any podcast player. And of course, if you have a smart speaker, just ask it to play The Big Story Podcast. If you're in Canada, you'll get us. If you happen to be in India, you will get their version of The Big Story, which is strikingly similar to ours even though we came out first. Stephanie Phillips is the lead producer of The Big Story. Joseph Fish and Brayden Alexander are our associate producers. And I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. Have a great weekend. Stay safe. We'll talk Monday.